Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV. You are listening to the Get Check, Get Fit, Get Moving show uh, with Doc Griggs and Dr. Derry. Doc Griggs is on his way in right now. We have a very special guest. We're very, very, very proud uh, to spend the hour talking with a great author and historian. Uh, before we do, let's just kind of do a couple of quick uh, announcements. Did you know that WHIV is a volunteer-driven community radio station? We're able to honor independent voices with your support. So please stand for human rights and social justice by, by becoming a member of WHIV. Monthly memberships are flexible. So whatever works for you, uh, or you can represent WHIV with a t-shirt, a tank top, excuse me, a funny pack, or more found on our online store. So go to whivfm.org and click support or store. Again, that's whivfm.org. Thank you for helping us to honor independent voices. We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. End all wars. Let's do a couple of other announcements here. The New Orleans Abortion Fund is hosting their sixth annual Sex Ed Bingo at the Catahoula Hotel on October 30th at 7 p.m. This is not your granny's bingo. Uh-uh. Emceed by the fabulous Ashley Branch. There will be sex trivia bingo, comedy, and saucy prizes. All events and uh, I'm sorry, all event proceeds fund abortions for patients seeking assistance. More information is available on their Facebook page uh, as well as uh, bit.ly forward slash sex ed bingo. And then lastly, the Innocence Project of New Orleans will be hosting its annual fall fundraiser, Harvesting Hope, a fundraiser for freedom on Friday. November 15th, the event will be held at the Tigerman Den located at 3133 Royal Street in the Bywater and will feature food and open bar, music by DJ, DJ Lunch Money. <laughs> Music by DJ Lunch Money and a silent auction. More information is available at www.tinyurl.com slash Harvest Hope 2019. And it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to have somebody, a friend of WHIV, a friend of the show, somebody who we've had on several times, award-winning author uh, Bobby Fleischer. Fiesler. Fleischer. God. I it's mean, all good. It's a I'm, weird I'm, German name. If, <laughs> if it sounds like someone's trying, it's perfect. Um, and uh, the author of the, remind me, the Upstairs Lounge, Tinderbox? Yeah, the book Tinderbox, Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. It's a long subtitle. My publisher, like, I don't even know. I think yeah, they, how, did you get, how did you get that by? They focus grouped it, I think, like, and to the point where I was just like, that's like a sentence. Like, it's hard for me to say in a breath. I, I, I can do it because I've done it. You know, you know how journalists don't write. Whoops, hang on. So let me put my phone on silent. Oh no worries. Uh, by the I way, just, if you get a chance to put your phone on silent, yeah, I uh, just had to because my husband text messaged me, God. <laughs> and he um, said, "How are you doing?" <laughs> right. Yeah, he always does that when I'm interviewing. <laughs> um, did you? You know how? Uh, uh, you know how uh, journalists don't write their own headlines. Oh do, no, we do, don't. Yeah. And so do. Um, do uh pu- is it the same thing with publishers like you know you maybe you get the title of the book they get the subtitle is that Mostly, how that works? Mostly that's how the compromise works. Got Where it. unless if they think you've hit it so far out of the park or if you're just a really big deal and you can sort of David oh, Bowie right. them yeah. and be like look I'm so cool this is it <laughs> this is the idea and then you just stare them down. Usually yeah like that, that that's the way it works and if you don't get the title right guess what. They'll do it for you. They'll do your title, too. I so bet. So you better really put some thought into it. Right, right, right. Well, uh, entering the booth right now is uh, the uh, infamous, the famous, infamous, infamous, is the lovely Doc Griggs. <laughs> <laughs> the lovely Doc Griggs. Doc Griggs, this is uh, Bobby. 
Uh, How you Bobby. doing? Bobby nice is, a, uh, is a well-respected and award-winning author. Uh, wrote the book called The Tinderbox, the story of the uh, the untold story of the upstairs lounge. And uh, today we are honoring nice. uh, LGBTQ Awareness Month, or what? What, 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 what is the? Uh, it's LGBT plus History Month, actually. Plus History Month, great. So, uh, what do we uh, what do we have on the docket today? To chat about? Yep. Well, there's a ton. I wrote a story for the Daily Beast, which is about. Um, the undercredited history of queer Christians and the MCC church, which we could talk about because the MCC of New Orleans um, is a church that still existed. It's right. had like a very a wayward uh, journey ever since it was devastated following the upstairs lounge fire, but it's still a thriving uh, religious community. Mm-hmm. And, and so, bringing Doc Griggs so, in, into so, this. So, so wait, I'm, I'm, I am new in the community, but we, we don't use acronyms. Oh, the MCC is the Metropolitan Community Church. There you go. Okay. There we go. You're yeah, saying yeah, that yeah. you're you're in the medical establishment. You're saying you don't use acronyms. No, we don't. No, not no. Never, I'm, never. No, no. I'm in, I'm in the com- community medicine. So, oh, okay. Uh, no, community medicine. We don't use acronym. Now I can acronym you to death. I, I can know. acronym him to death. We can all acronym each other to death. But the problem well, is often, we <laughs> have other people listening, and they want to. Yeah, know no, we appreciate need, it. We have to spell I, it out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually rather be acronymed to death by Doc Riggs because he usually bores me to death. So yeah. that'll oh, be a Lord. change. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. This man, yeah, you this can man, I don't believe this man's going to bore me. So we have company, so he's actually trying to. He's showing off a little bit, but as you, do you, you want to smell popcorn? That was real corny, bro. That was a, oh, that was a, oh no, <laughs> dude! <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Get check, get fit, get moving. Eat your popcorn. That, that was tough. <laughs> um, so today is uh, we're we're talking to uh, to Bobby about the uh, about uh, uh, LGBT uh, history uh, mm-hmm. month and. One of the things that his specialty is in, are, are, do you remember the Upstairs Lounge? I do. Are you familiar with that? That was yes. the uh, fire that was an arson. Mm-hmm. It, it was at the t- before the Pulse yep. Uh, yep. 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 Uh, massacre. This was the largest uh, kind of mass killing, I, I guess. Is that the right yeah, way of saying LGBT it? Yeah, LGBT plus history. Wow. Right. In a LGBT. record never meant to be broken. Right. A record. And yes. And, never. And, and, right. uh, and uh and so the at, at the time the MCC church was the uh only or was at the time the one of the only churches that was in town that provided any amount of community service or a gathering place or really just an address uh where people could have mail sent uh, besides a gay bar gay right. bars were the only other get community gathering place so the I mean, M- think think about that like um, that people could not even have mail sent uh places and so a church was a place to do it sounds it was... vaguely familiar <laughs> mm. yeah how so oh the the ratio of the women race people picking reasons to discriminate and take oh, yeah. rights from people sure. Just oh sure. Sure, sure, they, sure oh you're different yes oh yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and what's weird about the identification of the other across time is that it becomes very real to some people in yeah. a certain span of time but it's really a roving and arbitrary it target it does, right. and there's it's no, just who's different? Who's different? Oh, wait, you're wearing shoes. So right. we're not going to like people that wear shoes <laughs> for the next 50 years. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so you were saying the MCC church is still in existence here. It uh, is. And it still has a queer focus? or Yeah. I mean, the MCC church is probably, it's the only, it's the largest queer-friendly uh, Christian denomination in the world. Um, and it's one of the only churches that was... Uh, founded by queer folk for queer folk who were interested in preserving some as- aspect of Christian spiritual life, but who wanted to reject uh, the negativity of their previous congrega- uh, congregations and or denominations well, that they I'm grew sure up be- with. Because well, I'm sure it probably rejected them. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and right. so that there's, this, there's a whole great degree of internal conflict that goes around where an indiv- a, queer, a queer individual oftentimes, and I mean, perhaps this was part of your journey, was part of my journey, but when you come out of the closet, you also feel like you have to reject uh, your previous oppressive religious system because it almost killed you. Sure. You know, in fact, we had on air here uh, about two weeks ago. Yeah. No, it was last week. We had a, a woman who specializes in, I'm going to try to remember what this was. It was like religious, tra- yeah, it's RTS, religious trauma syndrome. Mm. You know, I grew up in this very, very oppressive Jewish home. Uh, I had no idea. Yeah. Very, very, mm-hmm. very orthodox, very, very religious, very oppressive. And to this day, I actually, my, my views, especially my public views on Palestine and the atrocities that are being uh, thrust upon uh, Palestine by that illegal and illegitimate government in Israel mm. uh, has uh, isolated me from a majority. In fact, I would say 90% of my family have completely rejected me because they are so fallen in line with uh, with uh, Israeli politics and, mm. and the hardline Jewish, right, right, right-wing Jewish oh, politics. Oh, okay. Right? And so I, that was what I grew up in. And, and at 13 or 14, that's when I kind of you know decided I was going into atheism. I was going to be an atheist, right? And sure. that's just kind of what I followed. And so this woman was talking to us about signs and symptoms of religious trauma syndrome. This, you know, for some people, religion, and especially those that are in the queer community, um, are you know, have uh, religion thrust upon them in such a way that it, it, it to this day, you know, decades later, still uh, affects them in, in one way or another. I'm not, sure. a, I'm not a specialist in this, but certainly... No, um, it'll you attack know, the, you. Suddenly, when you're right. very happy, you right. could be in a queer setting, but you're at a picnic, or you're being intimate with a lover or what have you, and right. then some thought... Or sometimes a physical body response will attack you that say, you're wrong, this is wrong. It's the most bizarre bizarre phenomenon. Right. You know, it doesn't happen to everybody, but for those, you know, I'm not not queer, I don't belong in the queer community, uh, but I have always kind of had, I've always been the the friend of the queer community, right? And so I have seen this for decades with friends uh, and people that I've known, how in the religious traditions that they have grown up in, how they had felt rejected. And so mm-hmm. something like the MCC church to me seems like that was a great alternative for folks that are still seeking spirituality, that are still seeking community, that are still seeking that sense of Christianity, all the positive elements of sure. Christianity that, that's accepting mm-hmm. uh, as opposed Volunteerism, to Volunteerism, social action, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Right. But they wanted to, to do away with all the other oppressive structures. Right. Right. So it was founded in um, October 1968 by this radical pastor who'd been rejected. Um, by for his quote unquote homosexual sins from his Florida church that he had moved and like started a new phase and stage of his life in California, a guy named Reverend Troy Perry, right? Who's become like, um, I mean, he's sort of like a gay zealot. If you read queer history, the history of LGBT plus rights, this guy is like in the background of every picture of really? every event. He's is he still alive? Around ever? Yeah, actually, what was so fascinating is now that. The MCC for years, because of anti-religious bias in the, in the LGBT plus leadership, and especially among leftist academics, didn't want to really include the MCC's um, really important um, initiatives in the larger queer rights story. Now, it's a different story. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, actually, Reverend Troy Perry was honored by the Smith's National Smithsonian Institute, and they um, they acquired some of his important papers and brought it into their archives wow. formally in a gesture. How, yeah, yeah, how great is that? Mm-hmm. And what 
what's he, I mean, he must be pretty advanced in age, I would imagine, at this point. Probably 80s or 90s? He is, yeah. He was in, I mean, I, I haven't done the math, but he was in his early 30s um, when he, um, po- after the upstairs lounge fire in New Orleans in 1973. He flew the next day, hearing the outcry, uh, um, na- which spread nationally, from Los Angeles to New Orleans. And he was in, in his early 30s then. He had dark black hair, like these long pork chop, these pork chop, like Elvis sideburns, like a, as was prototypical. Immediately right. when he said pork chops, I thought Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, yeah, that era of yeah, Elvis. Yeah, yeah. And um and then he would wear a pink clerical collar which pissed everyone off. It pissed it that pissed off. <laughs> um it pissed off uh obviously right-wing Christians, but it also it also upset um uh, gay liberationists who were looking to like radically to f- overturn you know all traditional social structures and were trying to reject at that time you know matrimony and monogamy at the same time and here's right. this guy in a pink clerical collar <laughs> saying you're gay I'll, I'll marry you and he invented a new term for gay marriage in this in like the late 60s called holy unions he was performing those um for uh, ca- uh, couples he would counsel so this was so because they couldn't get a marriage license and they couldn't get anybody otherwise to mm-hmm. marry them yeah so he would, I, he would have th- spirit Spiritual conjugation. So this was the precursor of domestic. What is it called? Domestic Des- partnership. Domestic or? partnerships. Right. Yep. So this was the precursor of the domestic. Yeah, partnership. In, the, in the late sixties, and some of the first civil rights lawsuits to recognize a same gender um, matrimony, same gender conjugation was, but were holy unions done huh. by this guy. Wow. Um, with the Metropolitan Community Did, Church. And what happened to those holy unions? Were they ever recognized? No. Uh, um, no. Okay. Actually, no. They were uh, they were treated back in the day as, I, I mean, they, as, so some of the upstairs lounge victims in 1973 New Orleans, when they died in this terribly, um, this notoriously unsolved arson fire that claimed 32 lives, um, had been joined in holy unions. And then you can, t- you can see the ethos of the era um, when these individuals died, some of them even in their will said they wanted to be buried with the partners to whom they'd been married. Um, and families paid no attention to this. Legal authorities paid no attention. It was as if these things were make-believe. Right. Um, gay marriage was just so far off the radars, even of, you know, nice people of good moral character. It was just not something that people considered part of um, part of the universe uh, of what was uh, what was real America, right? Of the human experience sure. between two human beings. Sure. If, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is the Get Check, Get Fit, Get Moving show with Doc Griggs and Doctor Derry. That's Doc Griggs over there. Uh, my name is Doctor Derry, and today we have on Bobby Fleischer, who is a award winning uh, uh, journalist and author of the uh, amazing book. Uh, uh, the Upstairs Lounge, the untold story of... Yep, Tinderbox. Do you want me to say it again? It's yeah. so long. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to no, take a no, breath. you got to say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. My public... It's like... I wish he hadn't focus grouped it. All right. <laughs> Tinderbox, the untold story of the Upstairs Lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. It's like, at times, I think I'm going to get it wrong. Breathe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good um, all right. So, uh, how about... I know that we didn't uh, have a chance uh, to kind of uh, prep a whole lot beforehand. How about uh, sh- can we talk a little bit about ACT UP? Are you familiar with any of the ACT UP stuff? Or, or? oh, in the late, um, I can't speak at length about okay. it. To be real with you, I mean, I mean, okay. I'm a huge believer, and like essentially what that what ACT UP did, and especially with what um, citizen scientists did in the midst of the AIDS crisis, right? Um, with you know voluntary human trials and the way that advanced things, right? You know that all that that work touched me in a much more personal way. So like when I was in uh, when I was 13 years old in 1995, a man I'd called uncle, but was really the brother of my aunt by marriage, um, died of AIDS, and I remember um, I found out uh, I, what homosexuality was, 
what um, AIDS was and what sodomy was, like what male male sex was, on the way to his funeral. And um, that's well, a lot to. <laughs> well, it was a traumatic event, and it, nobody. It was one of those things nobody knew to, to how to even talk about someone dying of AIDS until um, you know at, when it was happening. Even in the mid '90s, especially when, where I grew up was like a an evel- evangelical Christian suburb we're, of Chicago, Chicago called right. Naperville, Illinois. I know Naperville. Very Do you well. really? Yeah, I went to Notre Dame. Oh, so okay. Friends oh, all right. Whole, I know that whole Chicago's huge. It is. And everyone that's from Naperville, to make it easy, I'm from Chicago. And they just leave it. They do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, that's what saying, I We're from Chicago. Yeah, just, uh, unless yeah, if yeah. I meet a Chicago, because then they're like, you're not from yeah, Chicago. Yeah, right, right, right. They're like, right. forget it. They can smell the not urbanness <laughs> yeah, on me. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anyone from Naperville, it's just like that town is as safe as it sounds. You know what I mean? And yeah. also as middle class oppressive as it sounds. Needs a. Uh, it reminds me of the show what was the show where uh everything was black and white and the girl went back um i was just thinking Reese about well, oh, pleasantville yeah, yeah, yeah. Pleasantville. That's yeah. What it i was, actually, actually, what it I was thinking the same conversation thing is kind of reminding me of pleasantville as yeah. she became more awakened to the world then things started coming in technical and people started turning on oh it. yes I mean, it's a, it, that is a an allegory for society it's amazing. oh yes so absolutely explain the movie and then give it context. Now, I'm a, giving you a pleasant film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I saw that as a teenager in Naperville, so it was like uh, wow. it was it was it was meta. Do you yeah, know what I mean? When you meta, saw yeah, it, like yeah. super meta, yeah. right? It was a uh, it was sort of it was a well, it was a playoff 1950s television, television and yeah. 1950s suburban morality and reality. Everyone's living in a sort of black and white, leave it to Beaver world, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Then. Um, a teenage girl becomes awakened at at first uh, sexually and then spiritually, and she she go, it turns from a black and white movie to Reese Witherspoon suddenly as a character in co- at first seeing color like red roses and things like that, and then end up it turns out one day she, you know I guess she she finds enough love with enough gentle that eventually she turns uh, she turns uh, full Technicolor too. Yeah. Then eventually other characters that become I guess awakened. Yeah. Turn turn those colors too, which is sort of just this wonderful. I guess like where we're going. Yeah, and I guess a wonderful aspect of symbolism for people who grew up in a town, a certain kind of town like that, who eventually, I don't know, decided they weren't part of the norm. Or... I grew up in North Winston Salem, North Carolina. Okay, yeah, that's right in the Bible Belt. And oh my so, gosh! Yeah, so there are things that they're just yeah yeah. There's oh, there's all kinds of stuff. Sure, uh, I believe I saw, you. I sure. Saw. And uh, and Doc Griggs actually tells a very famous story of his life about uh, kind of wrapping this back around to the HIV thing uh, about how the, uh, Doc Griggs was actually inspired to become a, a physician uh, as a result of seeing uh, no, an, an enormous, yeah, yeah. enormous amount of compassion and kindness shown to a person who was dying of AIDS that mm-hmm. the rest of the hospital was treating as a pariah. Literally oh hazmat suits. Is what in my memory at sixteen. Um, in which year was this? This was nineteen eighty six. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they had my suits. The isolation was down at the end of the hall. I remember, and there was a clean, dirty room, um, and we were in the standing in the dirty room watching inside this window. And I remember uh, Doctor Peacock going in, sitting on the bed right next to this guy. I'm like, man, he's gonna die. I don't know what that is. He's gonna die. But the door was open, and you could hear him say, "We don't, we don't know what this is, but I know what it's not. Um, it's not anything that I can contract." Uh, by treating you, being your doctor, and trying to figure out what this is. And the family came to the bed. Dr. Peacock hugged them. We ended up hugging and crying. I'm like, all right, this is – I didn't want to be a doctor at the time. I was only doing that to get girls, to be honest. I was that was a late bloomer. Mm. Uh, so I was hanging – I was short, 5'2". Hi, boys. Uh, the, guy, the, kid, the guys wanted to be lawyers. I wanted to be a doctor. So I'm hanging out. Like, man, I'll be glad when this is done. And uh, it just kind of struck me. I'm like, I want to do that, I think. 
This is I want to help people. And that been going this way ever since. Taking a convoluted route right. to get back to it because I still try to go back to law school. Right. And I just got every time I try to get out, it pulls me back. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and so for for yourself, Bobby, the the death of your of your uncle or the man that you had called your uncle was that a um, was that a process for you? Uh, in it's terms a traumatic of, experience. I uh, thought that at first uh, it was the only other person I knew who was like me. I only found out about it posthumously. He was dead. It felt like on the drive to his funeral, I was I was given a mentor and then taken and have that mentor taken away in the same breath. I feared that uh, I thought that every gay person, if they embraced themselves in the way that my uncle Kenny had, would die of AIDS for years, and I was terrified of it. Were you aware at the time that you yourself were? I'm 13, so of course, like um, that, that's that's, a, that's that's the time where um, uh, normal fantasies start taking, and it becomes quite clear. Um, even if uh, it becomes quite clearly what qu- quite queer, quite clear what you like. <laughs> Um, I thought you said that purposely. And quite, quite queer. Actually, that was what worked. I know it was. It was. It did work. I was like, oh, this yeah. man is, he's like, not there. He's he, brilliant. He's really wow. good at being able to do that. I, yeah, it was just, spon- just some spontaneous morning poetry, Bam. guys. Some morning poetry. What's in this cup? Some morning poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so um, and what what struck me though it was uh, um, it was the next uh, it was ninety six um, and I I was aware of this even as a fourteen year old that was when I, I was reading all about this in Time magazine where people would read publications about this stuff that was when the anti retroviral medications um, started to get good started to get good the, and those protease inhibitors is right. what they were writing about but right the, and, at that time the combination of medications what we refer to as cocktails yeah started to become a thing and then people were describing the so-called Lazarus effect of individuals sure um, mm-hmm. of yep. individuals Rising who are on death's the, door yep. right right um, having a dramatic turnaround sure Sure. Uh, from these medications, which sure. you could speak more sure. more to this about this, but the development of those medications was sped up, and, mm-hmm. and some, many people sure. argue due uh, due to uh, a lot of the work of the citizen scientists with ACT UP and things yeah. like that. And so, kind of wrapping that back around, that that this is why you know, I, I and I, I'm not a historian, and I'm certainly not a historian on the LGBT community, but I would imagine that ACT UP must have a huge chapter in the large history book of LGBT, sure, uh, because of what they did. And and uh, and as an infectious disease doctor, everything I'm about to say right now is hugely biased. Okay, so I just want to let everybody mm-hmm. know. And there's an element of me. Passing Adding ourselves on the back here, but w- what we did, we as uh, as a uh, as a as a specialty, uh, we took a what most people would refer to as the death sentence uh, of HIV, then ultimately AIDS, and turned it into a chronic disease. And a large part of that was done largely in when I look back on the history, and again without a historian's keen eye like yourself, hmm. has to have been because of what happened with ACT UP. Because prior to, first of all, infectious diseases had not really been a specialty that had been around for very long. So it was mostly oncologists, cancer doctors, mm-hmm. and heart doctors, cardiologists. And that was largely because when people died of AIDS, it was mostly down the pathway of some sort of cancer or it was some or sort of heart disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or there was some sort of opportunistic infection. Right. But, it, it, you know, most docs would, would, you know, more or less manage that or the ICU docs could manage that but it was 50% died of heart failure and issues regarding heart and a large proportion of them died of any sort of cancer as well Mm -hmm. so at that point uh, the cancer doctors and the um, uh, and the heart doctors were kind of business as usual the way that their profession kind of was had always done things Mm -hmm. but infectious diseases was that was a fairly new uh, 
specialty. And so the, the infectious disease docs, because it was new, I think we were influenced. We, I, obviously, I was in medical school at the time. Mm-hmm. But I think that we were influenced by the radicalism of ACT UP, mm-hmm. by the we, we will never accept no. You know, oh, sure. We will never accept, oh, we have to wait for the trials yeah. to show These this. These are individuals and, dying right. Right, of like dying of HIV virus, sure. dying of AIDS, who are screaming at members of the FDA saying, you know, we're willing to, you know, sacrifice our bodies for voluntary human trials, right. test us, do these things. Which typically is the trend with in, in infectious, infectious epidemics. Uh, if you look at the Ebola virus, if you look at the way we respond to any of the infectious diseases immediately when people are dying in record numbers, uh, it's the ID world that really comes to the rescue, and people are like, the patients are like, save our lives. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I give him his credit. He's, he's, yeah, he's I mean, and Hep C, and look <laughs> at Hep C. I mean, yesterday we. Well, had... someone else is saying it. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. but it's it's your. You need to be here more often because usually we just hurl insults at each other all what? day long. Oh, yeah. So the yeah, fact yeah, that I got yeah, a compliment yeah, from yeah, a do- yeah. that's why I just started really? by yeah. that's why I started yeah. with ha- happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was wondering why you seemed startled. I'm like, oh, doctors. <laughs> comp- I thought doctors compliment each other all the time. This is a community medicine show. We we get we get pretty real. Here's the dirty little secret about doctors. We mostly don't like each other. (laughs) Because strong personalities, smart people, one room. Oh, wait. (laughs) So there's there's an issue I have right there. So first of all, I don't want to be rude. These are our uh, community medicine students that are coming through. Yeah, Brian, say hello. So How you doing? This is not TV. How you doing? All right. All right, that was Brian. Brian is uh, Xavier Public Health. You want to be an epidemiologist? Yes, and I also uh, want to be infectious disease as well. All right. And we have, a, a, as a physician or as an epidemiologist? Figuring it out. Yeah, yeah Brian, Brian wants to go into infectious and, disease epidemiology. And he said Fantastic. community medicine yesterday, right? And also community medicine as well. Oh, community medicine, excellent. He's at that age, yeah. Awesome. Keep going, come on. That's Macy. And there's Macy. Gotta speak louder. It's a microphone, not a camera. <laughs> Do you want to talk to mine? Yeah, come talk Here. to mine. Here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Community medicine puts you in uncomfortable places. Yeah, there we go. We, uh... <laughs> so, Brian, you got to we... do it again. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to get some students here. Here we go. Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Hi. Hi, Macy. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, uh, you probably didn't expect to be on air, but uh, now we've got you. Uh, yeah. So, you are uh, going into... Dietetics. Dietetics. Yes. So that as is that are you a nutritionist or dietitian or what I'm is that? Working on becoming a registered dietitian. There you go. Excellent. So you would do work in the hospitals, kind of consulting on patients. Um, it's a big route. We can go community <laughs> or we can do clinical <laughs> inpatient. Excellent. Well, welcome, welcome. Are you an undergrad or? Um, no, we did our undergrad already. So, so you're this getting a master's. Graduate. Oh, excellent! Excellent. LSU. LSU. Okay. LSU. Excellent. All right. All right. We uh, we'll take that. Uh, and uh, you are. Hello. Good morning. Hi. <laughs> um, my name is Ronnie. I'm also a dietetic intern at Tulane. Uh-huh. Um, we can do all the sort of stuff. I went to East Tennessee, East Tennessee State University, yeah. sure. which is the university in Tennessee that nobody talks about. We're talking everybody. about it now. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, so I did my undergrad in nutrition there, and now we have eight more months until we can sit for the RD exam. And become all right. Well, yeah. congratulations. And then uh, it, it, was, it was Robert? Yeah. Brian. Brian. Oh, Brian. Dude, I am so jealous. 
I am so jealous. My wife will not let me get a nose ring. Like <laughs> I, I think a, a, a nice little stud that you have right there. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's. Cool. Part, I want to do the yeah. same thing. I'm going to take a picture with you. I'm going to show my wife because she she refuses <laughs> she refuses to let me she refuses to let me. I think she thinks that like it would just like I already do a good job of destroying my professionality. She thinks that a stud. I appreciate. I think it would look fly as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so explain to so to, you're at Xavier getting at the school of public health. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Um, you get master's or undergrad? Undergrad. Uh-huh. Um, I graduate in December. Great. Um, all right. And so, I want to get my master's maybe at LSU or Tulane. Sure. Epidemiology. In, in the school of public health. Yes. Right. And then uh, you're focusing on infectious diseases? Yes, I want to do that. After my grandfather passed away, which is, he got his leg amputated, uh-huh. I just felt the connection. I want to help people and kind of so figure out, you know, why I want to do it. So. Sure. He leg amputated, Doc. Yeah, he, wait, so I'm assuming your grandfather was probably diabetic? No, he smoked cigarettes a lot. He smoked cigarettes mm-hmm. a lot. Okay, yeah. so he had something called peripheral artery disease. Yes. And so, and then he probably had some gangrene, or did he get his leg infected? Or? It was infected, so they um, cut it off, like, towards the kneecap. They amputated. Yeah, and uh-huh. then um, he was he was going, like, a, a few months to get a, um, a prosthetic leg. Right. But he, um, I think he had a heart attack. He f- passed away, fell. I'm sorry so sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's great. A lot of people do get into medicine from personal reasons like that. And yeah. so, uh, you know, please continue down your path. Yeah. Uh, you know, we need more folks like yourself in, in the in the field, especially in infectious diseases. Yes, I'm trying to learn. Thank All you. Right. Thank, All you. Right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. If, you. if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is the Get Check, Get, Fit, Get Moving show with Doc Griggs and Dr. Derry. That's Doc Griggs over there. We just heard from some of his incredibly talented uh, interns. Thank you guys so much for being here with us. We also have with us uh, award-winning and acclaimed author, Bobby Fleeser, who is the uh, author of The Upstairs no, Lounge. Get a, get, no, let him say it again. I want to say it again. Sure. I got to breathe. <laughs> one, I breath. <laughs> one, one breath. One <laughs> breath. Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. I, 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 just, I just fell over almost. <laughs> Do I get my radio voice? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you see, but you see, Griggs and I, we have faces for uh, radio. You actually have a face for TV. Yeah. Oh, th- wow. <laughs> you can pull it off. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right. So. I actually think you both have faces for TV, <laughs> to be real. He's actually on TV like four or five times a week, actually. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, all right. So talk to us more about uh, more historical uh, figures uh, in the LGBT. What, what, I want to I know oh, no. the historical figures, but what inspired you to – so I just wrote the children's book, and I was inspired by someone sending me an email that pissed me off. I ended up writing three of them. What inspired you to actually – Get to so the historical figures are the historical figures. Something mm-hmm. pushed you. Like I was an English major, and writing can be hard. Uh, which is oh. why I get, oh, <laughs> writer's block the whole nine. What sure, inspired you and to writing sit occurs down and, in isolation too, right? Oh. So especially if you're writing on a, a book length piece, like, I mean, like that book time is tree time. Like trees will age faster than your book will. Do yeah. you know what I mean? So it took me five years to write a nonfiction yeah. book. Do you know what can happen in five years mm. of a life? It's the same thing where where you're you're in medical school or yep. whatever. It's a, it's a it's a devotional chunk of your life. Where I can think of all the things that happened in those in the, those five years, all my grandparents that were still alive died. All my siblings got married. Two yeah. of my siblings got pregnant. Then had the kids. Then the kids turned one. That's a long time. Well, and, 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 and you know <laughs> what's a, he doing? Always, always off writing a book. Right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I um I. I, I think I, I always wanted to write a book about a topic that I thought mattered, mm-hmm. um, that could make some amount of change 
um, towards helping people understand, I guess, what life had been like for my uncle who died of mm-hmm. AIDS mm-hmm. Um, and in the world that he inhabited, which mm-hmm. was pre-legal, pre-decriminalization uh, of, of homosexual mm-hmm. life, right. where crimes against nature laws existed, yeah. anti-sodomy laws existed, um, laws against importuning, yeah. which was just men. What is that? Men or men or women picking each other up. This was if they, it hadn't engaged. It hadn't importuning was the word pickups. people would use. Right. Pickups. This this just means flirtation. Doesn't it, it hadn't engaged? It hadn't entered yet into a moment where there was any sort of physical encounter. This is just someone propositioning another person. And that, and that was which illegal be, itself. That, it, that was illegal and itself. And it's so dangerous because it could be anything. Hey man, that's a nice tie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Witch! Any, it could it's be a witch. Any, it could <laughs> yeah. be I mean, like, right. but but people, would, queer men would have to speak in such, you know, um, complicated code that could it be like, I are you having the same kind of problem as me? Right. Like, could be an, a, a way where one man was hitting oh, on right. an, hitting on another kind of man, get, or get one across, woman was hitting right. on another woman. Right. Um, but then uh, there was at that for a long span of time too, it was illegal for uh, queer folk for to use the mail and to to pass any sort of material that could be interpreted as as homosexual because that could be categorized as pornography. And that mean that meant that you were distributing wow. obscenity and right. in violation of federal law. Jeez. So, 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 on, in that vein, and I, I do want to get back to the historical figure. How did sure. you want to talk to the community so people can understand that when, first of all, it is a, it is an uh, an isolating place to, to attempt to write a book. Anybody who's had to write an essay, an opinion paper, or something. For oh, school, sure. Magnify that by like a thousand mm-hmm. because there are drafts that you have. And to then throw multiply away. that by a thousand. Yeah, multiply <laughs> that by a thousand. Yeah. And then more importantly, though, doing a nonfiction like that and, uh, from a historical perspective, how hard was it? I mean, the reason it takes five years, you had to go through some painful stuff that you had to process. Sure, and you and, had to report it out. Yeah. And report it out. And then you had to think of it happening to your uncle. And then you had to think about things that had happened to yourself. And then the, the it's cathartic, but it's painful to have to write all of it. And I found sure. that with a children's book. It's only a few pages because it was semi-autobiographical, but, mm-hmm. and, but I, there's no history in it other than myself. It doesn't have to actually do with an actual mm-hmm. event. How did you get through? What was the, your process? The process of writing it, of emotionally writing it? Yeah. Um, well, it, it was difficult because I had to... Uh, I wanted to flesh out the the individuals who were important historical figures in the See, midst of this historical event. Bam, get your popcorn. <laughs> and your popcorn. I, I wanted popcorn. their... That I wanted them to not just be names or not just statistics of individuals who were among the 32 people who died. I wanted to they, these were individuals who had lived some cases 40 some years of their lives. They had lived very full lives. So I wanted to be able to tell their backstory, and I wanted to be able to, in a sense, through nar- the magic of narrative, yeah. even nonfiction narrative, yeah. to animate them and to show that they were um, interesting, funny. Uh, vibrant people to a certain and to a certain degree I wanted readers to fall in love with them mm-hmm. um, as I introduced them uh, up to the point where I placed them in the significant room at the significant time when the significant event happened where, where essentially the fire enters this gay bar yeah. and many of them many of them perish and I wanted it to feel emotionally consequential which is brilliant what you did was you brought them into your mind and you brought them through your journey oh my god keep going yeah, keep yeah, going yes exactly <laughs> i like this dude, I'm english dude i can't when i turn it on i turn it on but you brought, <laughs> brought them into your mind and you put them through the emotional roller coaster and that's any mm. successful author that's why he's award-winning they bring you they show you the story 
through their lens mm. uh, and that you can adapt through your own. So just just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, popcorn, um, dude, popcorn. Fundamentally, though, I think every writer, when you when you write a story, and you may, you, you, I want to talk a little bit about your books that you wrote too, but um, ha- has a selfish reason too about that motivates them. You can't just be interested. You have to be a, have a stake in the story. Otherwise, how the heck are you going to finish a hundred thousand uh, word manuscript? I mean, or even thousand words. Yeah, write that by Friday, y'all. I, how? How? I mean, because everyone, every every author reaches like a halfway point in their book where they look. At everything they've created up to this point, and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. this is awful. This is dumb. What am I hope nobody sees that. I couldn't even share this with someone. This is just terrible. My my full manuscript of the book, Tinderbox, was yeah. twice the, the length yeah. of the book that ended up publishing. My husband called it Gay War and Peace or Gay Lord of the Rings. That's what he called it. And I'm going to tell you something. The Jire spun wildly to the point where I was like, I read through this thing and I'm like, I'm not sure what this is about. <laughs> I'm not sure. Eventually, like you hem it down and you pull it down, and it feels good to cut stuff at that point. Um, but you, but the personal stake I had in it was what I was. I myself wanted to learn and to place myself into a past, into a different America, and into a different reality where um, our common 21st century ideas about queer life, about LGBT plus existent, existence wouldn't fit. I wanted to be able to change my mindset by placing it in a different context. So it was transformative for you. Oh, I, I, I believe so. I learned so much about human nature. No, you had to get pissed off a of lot. Course, like, the, of course. Of course. Oh, let me take that part out. Then you need mm-hmm. to exercise as a journalist and as a historian, though. I mean, I could. this wasn't a book about settling scores for me. I had to decide early on where you have to exercise a lot of emotional restraint not to let the rage go in. And I've read, you know, I've read a lot of books that try to – they start off being a book of, of gay history and they end up being a book of gay <laughs> yeah. activism. Yeah, yeah. Right, because the person's at you know you could what? you could read the page where the person gets pissed off and then they're just pissed <laughs> off the rest of the way. Wait, but hang on a second. But gay history and gay activism to mm-hmm. me almost seem like two sides of the same coin. They can be, they can be, but oftentimes um, where where an activist uh, will have a different tact than a historian or a journalist is that they will filter out inconvenient facts. They'll, they'll take a Michael Moore <laughs> approach to reality, and I I, ha- I have a lot of sympathy for Michael Moore, and I have a lot of sympathy for gay activism. I just had to decide early on that's not my role with this story that's not my tag on this also you can be a thesis in search of evidence meaning right i know what the upstairs lounge story is about right here and i'm gonna go find out evidence to fill out all my different chapters right and then in the end i'm gonna essentially present a story to you that satisfies my preconception of this event rather than what i wanted to do was i wanted to have my mind blown i wanted to be surprised right Right. um, and i wanted to be shaken right um and changed right by the work um, and so that's the gift of, of art is that it's transformative for the artist often as well. Did you find that when you were writing your materials? So mine is a, chi- is a children's story. I mean, it's not published yet, but nobody's going to steal it. It's about the journey to be a doctor. Um, everyone and uh, uh, Doc will tell you, I'm not one to sit around and talk much about action. If we have to get out of here. And that door's locked, and someone says, we can't get out. I'm going to knock the door down. And then they'll be like, oh, great, I couldn't find the key. <laughs> Are we out? Yeah, we're out. We're good. We'll fix it later. Um, so everyone keeps talking. It was uh, African-American males in med school. There are less in med school now than there were in 1978. And everyone keeps to all these adults are sitting in a room trying to figure out why don't uh, black men go to med school? Why aren't they talking? I'm like, has anybody talked to the kids? Um, no, it's a bunch of old people. Well, Doc, well, you're young. You're in the room. Can you tell? I graduated from med school in 96. I don't know. I, the, the internet didn't exist. <laughs> Shut up. You flunk. You flunk. You flunk. That's not funny. That's not funny. Um, 
So it just hit me to write a, a children's book to like uh, five, six-year-old kids. You got a minute, Doc? It's quick. Yeah. So are you, you going to read it? Yeah, it's quick. Oh. So that's, that's a kid's book. It's called – and you, you can really appreciate what it took to condense this down. The, the, the part that people don't understand about trying to write something that's semi-autobiographical or that's something that really touches you is I had to write out my anger pieces – Anyway, yeah. throw them away so I wouldn't oh, sure. include them. And I told my grandma, oh, no, can't you say yep. that? No. And I told that teacher, she could, no, no, yep. no, let's see. But I still had to write it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you could see what, that's the book. <laughs> the stuff that you've thrown on the ground. Oh, my the, gosh. That's your activism. It's like having, it's like having a dog that's really friendly to everyone until someone walks in the room and that is, that really rubs them the wrong way. And it's the same dog that everyone's been petting, but there's like, and you right. can't turn it off. Mm. It, it's it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write this book on the history of discrimination in medicine. <laughs> and the first thing I had to do is I had to spend a week writing out all the voices that were in my head and all the stories and go. all the things that just needed to come out. And mm-hmm. so now they're out. They're in a completely separate file. Like, you know, I was save them though. I threw mine yeah, away. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to save them and, and use them at some point in the future. Um, but that the intent, when I sat down was to really write a book on humor and medicine. So I was writing stories on things that were really funny. And then of course that kind of shifted into focusing on something what I think is much more important, which is the history of discrimination in medicine. So really looking at racism, misogyny, trans and homophobia and Mm. how the extrinsic and the intrinsic elements of medicine. So how the outside society has affected those elements and how physicians themselves have, uh, uh, have expressed racism. Cause if you think about how this country was started, it was started based on genocide of the first nation peoples. And then mm. of course it was based on the stolen labor of people that were stolen from oh Africa. So not just Africa though. Yeah. Just, just for the sort of like Howard Zinn though. The, I like it right now for the sake of this. But, but if you think about the people that were running this country, they needed doctors to keep them, obviously alive and keep them healthy. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at what the first physicians were doing, they were actually they were part of this white patriarchy mm-hmm. that was keeping the system alive. And I, I my thesis is is that that has then distilled into the DNA of medicine so that it's so deeply invisible uh, you can't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so but so, all that so, to say so all I that have a, to, I have a source, a resource for you that I'm making them read by Thursday and write up. It's the Broussard paper. I, I, sh- I gave it to you. We, when we first met that? the Broussard paper and it's the history of health inequity in New Orleans. Oh yeah, dude. That and the paper story, is, yeah. is, yeah. that is, that is, that is the, that's the yeah. Bible. That is like, <laughs> That the is implicit the bias that still that's the go- exists the to this post. day. That's, right. yeah, yeah. that's, that's so, the roadmap. So this was written when I wanted to write it. At first I was going to write about my experience. You know, it's blackmailed. It but it, it, it's actually for everyone because every time I read it, and it's copywritten so I can read it, um, even though they're telling me not to. Um, Who's telling you not to? Yeah, my family's. Oh, you got to wait until it's, no, it's, it's protected. I'm, I'm going to do this book. It's at the Illustrator right now. Good. But uh, it's called, I uh, said I'm going to be a doctor, The Adventures of Jamal and Poppy. Jamal is my cousin who died. Um, we always live in our house of lung cancer at age 44, and he's one of my best friends, most encouraging. And Poppy's my puppy. He's eight, and he's a rascal, and uh, that was Jamal's friend. Mm. So uh, it, it starts with, if you can picture the scene, there's a kid in a kindergarten classroom with the kids dressed up as mummies, Frankenstein, the whole nine. And this little kid, uh, kind of looks like me with an afro, walks in, dressed as a doctor. And everyone, including the teacher, laughs at him. So I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And everyone laughed at me. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And even my teachers couldn't see. 
I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And my friends, they made me cry. They thought that it was funny, but didn't ask me how or why. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And Grandma said, baby, that's a nice thought. I believe you can be anything. But, baby, you don't like shots. <laughs> I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And Grandpa said, I believe. You can do whatever you put your mind to if you work really hard to achieve. And though it seemed impossible, because no doctor looked like me, my mom said, you can do it. Keep pushing, baby. You'll see. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. My pastor said, um, okay. That's going to take a lot of faith. Get on your knees. Let us pray. <laughs> I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And one teacher, she just smirked. My uncle said, keep going. And you know what? It worked. I spent a lot of time inside when I really wanted to play. But every time I tried to quit, a voice inside said, stay. I worked a lot and cried some days. It took me a while to see that my dream to be a doctor was going to have to come from me. Mm. Some teachers, when they saw my dream, gave me more work to do. And though I thought they didn't believe, they were helping my dream come true. I studied real hard and fell down a lot. Wow, did it hurt. Oh, man. But when I looked in the mirror to say I can't, my village said, you can. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. I had to learn to ask for help. Sometimes to do a difficult thing takes a lot more than yourself. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And it turned out to be true. Now I take care of my village. I did it so you can too. There you go. Mm. Yes. Yes. Nice. Nice. But that that book, that thing. Overtones of Shel Silverstein. Overtones yeah. of Susian at times. Susia, it's yeah, good, go. man. Go. It's good. Yeah, it was about. That's 30, important. 40 pages thick, single space, because I was writing stuff. Yeah, and the teacher told me she, I would get kicked out of class. Um, I was the only African American in my class uh, for most of my elementary school and high school, junior high career. Didn't really know, didn't care, but there was discrimination from the teacher level. They tried to kick me out of the gifted program. Mm. No one said I could be a doctor. Like, no one. My grandmother's first words were, I don't know how you're going to do that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, that, mm. that, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> do you think was, that, that was motivational, that the people telling you that you couldn't, did that become the way that desire works? Did the obstruction make you want to fight even harder? And that's, that, that yes. Uh, it put a chip. Not on my shoulder, but it puts a chip in your heart because it, you find out how bad you really want to do something when everyone says you can't. Mm. And you keep getting called to it. Even when I tried to go away uh, from it, I got pulled to the radio and it turned into here I am with all the, I got students now. What the heck? <laughs> um, but my grandmother did give me a quote, and I think it was their motivation. She grew up during the Depression and everything was money, 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 money. Yeah. Because she was my biggest fan. But she always said, first they call you crazy and then they're going to laugh at you, then they question you, and then they're going to follow you. Mm. But then what I realized later is being, yeah, yeah, they follow you and then they pay you. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then you make a living out of it. Yes. If yeah. you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is the Get Check, Get Fit, Get Moving show with Doc Riggs and Dr. Derry. Today we have on there Bobby Fleeser, who's an award-winning author of the book, uh, uh, The Upstairs Lounge. Tenderbox. The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Doc Riggs, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story yeah. with well, us. Thanks. That was really, uh, it is going to be, that the, the inspiration that that's going to bring an untold number of young people is, is 
un, it's immeasurable. I'm glad he it's likes important. it because I'm setting this up. So the way I set it is I didn't make it about me. I made it about any doctor. Mm. So we can go to read to kids. Yes, sure. You can just have a doctor go read to kids sure. and you take that story. But, but I mean, I think you should focus, you should focus it on with like, you know, uh, you could have as an illustrator and I'm just riffing off the top of my head. Why not have it with a Latinx male or Latinx that's female exactly, or an African American male so, and African, so, you know, and so, so take communities that otherwise are not going into medicine and, and gear the book toward. So this way, if it, if there is a young Latinx seven year old girl exactly. who wants to go into medicine, this is the book that would be given to her. So mm-hmm. here's a, here's a cool thing about it. So this is just one in a series. I wrote two more, but it's about a gang of kids, uh, and I, I I make the kids are all made after my friends. Mm. I have a friend that is a math teacher, but he was tall and athletic, so he played sports, but he. <laughs> Hated it. Uh, he wanted to be a teacher all the time. But you talk about his story, and they're all supporting each other. Mm. Jamal has a little sister, um, and she follows him and watches him. What happens? And she's like, "Well, girls can be doctors too." Right. Mm. And they're all different races, all different um, genders. They all have different issues, but they all deal with it the same. And they got a little dog. I mean, it's it's you know, Senator Kamala Harris on the debate stage two debates ago talked about this amazing study that I, I went and looked up. Uh, that showed that if you, if a black child has a uh, has a elementary school teacher mm-hmm. who's black, mm-hmm. uh, there's it in, increases the likelihood of like going to college by like twenty percent. This is mm-hmm. Rosa if, Wilson. If they have two black teachers in their elementary school, so one and then one year and then another one another year, it increases that that likelihood of going to college by like thirty five percent or something. And so, so important. It's so important for young people to see themselves and others uh, so as to be models able, models yeah. introduce the notion of possibility it. to be it so there's this thing now called ace educator adverse childhood events um, and every time I'm in the training sessions um, I always end up with this ridiculously high a score like I wasn't supposed to wasn't supposed to be there because uh, the things that happen the higher your a score the less likely you are to go to college less likely you are to succeed have a family more likely you are to go to jail blah 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 blah. Ugh, there's a lot the, of science. sounds like it's like ace score ace ace adverse right. childhood events i mean it's a, it's a sounds thing. like a social determinants like is some well, sort it, of marker it, of social determinants it, it is it's tied to it and what we're, what they've done is they've created a lens for people to look through like in the leg- in the judicial system when they're talking to people to understand where people come from like everything's mm-hmm. going towards social determinants and i think it's great I actually think it's a great thing um because they've put a metric to it well they've recognized it but putting mm-hmm. a metric to it so uh, it's kind of tough because i don't everyone i know we all got we got my era we got spanked as kids mm-hmm. uh there were divorces there were people smoking weed if you call that drugs you got in a fight or two you got bullied at school so that's, these are a scores but we i, I kind of want to flip the script and turn it into a resilience thing mm-hmm. because you you it, it happened in spite of that like we didn't have seat belts like your seatbelt was your mom and dad's arm holding you mm-hmm. in. Wa- 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 water came from a hose. Water came mm-hmm. from a hose. You'd have a lollipop. We, taste we, we, used right, to, right. we used to play games called long darts. Long where we, oh, my gosh. We would throw darts at one we another. Oh, my gosh. We had dirt bomb fights where you take a dirt bomb and just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just, we had a game called, I mean, we, we, the, the point is um, human beings are resilient if we're allowed to mm-hmm. process through that, if it's acknowledged. And we're allowed to process through it. The mm-hmm. isolation that you talk about when you were uh, writing writing your book, um, it's tough because you don't have anyone to talk to. As we were going through traumatic events, if we have things, and we, since we've been on the air, I can't name the number of things that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. But when something would happen growing up, for the most part, you could go outside and find one friend and y'all would go for a walk and you talk about 
everything. I mm-hmm. can't believe she did that. You know, those parents are just whack, man. They think they're cool. I wish they would. Whew. And then by the time you get home, you talk and process. Mm-hmm. And you, oh, mom, what's, oh, I forgot I'm supposed to be mad at you. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but, but pr- the, the isolation of writing your book, bringing it back home, how did that feel? Because you had no one to talk to. Um, I mean, your husband, maybe, you, but do they want to hear it? What you just said that's br- <laughs> brought up something for me, though, as a kid, because I was a closeted gay kid. I only came out mm-hmm. at age like 21 in college. I was a junior. Wow. I, I took me three years of college and my friends telling me it was OK to come out in order to come out. And um, I, I never had that growing. And a lot most queer folk, depending on the environment you grow yeah. up in, don't have a friend or a person they can talk, talk to. to. You live in a, in a sort of private conspiracy where you're trying to deny or fix mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that's going on with yourself, um, and I, uh, I, I, I wish I'd had that kind of an outlet, which was probably why I was so uh, bummed out when my uncle passed away. I, I found out what he was after he was dead because I realized I, I would have wanted um, someone to connect with. Um, and it's, it's even weird. Like, I hate to like date myself on this sort of thing, but like, I, like my high, my 20th anniversary, anniversary, uh, high school reunion yeah. happened like yeah. uh, a few weeks ago. I didn't go yeah. in long, in, in large oh. part because, um, in, in large part because I don't, it's very difficult for me to relate to a past where I hadn't manifested my authentic self. And I know I had friends mm-hmm. and I know I had tight people and that, that I'm still close with and whatnot. But there's still this part of me that feels like, I don't know if I knew myself. And I don't know if you really knew me back then. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I don't know how to express that. And I don't want to. I don't want to bum your high. I yeah, bet yeah, you're yeah, all yeah, living yeah. the good old days together yeah, and right, laughing right, it up. Right. Where I'm going to be like, yeah, guess what? I mean, I, I I don't know if you if you um what decade you were you grew up in or not. But oh, like, I'll date it. We, uh, now he's old. He grew up in the '60s or '50s or something like that. Oh. I, I, grew up, I grew up in the '70s, '80s. Yeah, that's, what, that's kind of what I'm used to now. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Um. um <laughs> He grew up writing cursive. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! I grew up at a time when when being left-handed was still considered not a good thing. Oh, so oh, they, the, I had n- Catholic nuns tried to change me from yeah, being yeah, left-handed. My grandmother too. changed me. Yeah, yeah. Literally, you, you were left-handed. Oh, and I still do things. But she would take it and put it. Yeah. And you put it by your hand. You pop. Can I right, listen? We have a couple more minutes. Trauma. Left. We have six sure. minutes. Can I ask you about two uh, uh, two uh, gay figures in history? If you would like you, to, yeah. Because you were talking about sodomy laws, and that that reminded me of Oscar Wilde and somebody for mm-hmm. whom I have great, great, great admiration yeah. for. Sure. So, any quick thoughts about Oscar Wilde and kind of he made fun of the elites and he got thrown <clears throat> in jail for it, and they used he did. they used sodomy or what they used to call it. Um, buggery. Bu- what was it? yeah? Buggery. Buggery. Yeah, um, that's a weird. Like it's so it's so I mean, but that he was had a, t- he had a male lover who was a lord. Um, and I, I I won't get in too far in depth in it, but he was a, he was more. a fantastic uh, celebrity in the in the era when celebrities were so, were sort of new. He was right. Irish. He came and he tran- he was a transfer student to Oxford, and when he showed up at Oxford, he was just immediately immediately the subject of all London newspapers because of not the fact that he'd written anything yet, just the way he talked and the way he dressed. He was just a magnificent, <laughs> confounding man um, that even at a young age people identified as. As, as someone significant, his plays were of the uh, Edwardian era are one of the uh, like the importance of being earnest. For example, is one of the only plays of that era that are oh, that are performed play, that are performed sincerely and not as a joke. Right. Like he was actually the legitimate artist of that era. He had a um, a male lover who had uh, a family. 
who was uh, who discovered uh, to a certain extent that uh, what was going on between him and his lover. Um, and they passed notes to each other. There was a very fr- famous phrase between him and his lover that uh, they would pass poetry notes where they'd have to speak in code even back then where they talked about the love that dare not speaketh its name. Sure. Um, which is referenced now in many different aspects to talking about what the, what the nature of closeted love was like in closeted. Um, and he uh, was eventually uh, tried uh, for uh, on charges for uh, for what then were, you know, homosexual crimes um and jailed and imprisoned um and never quite the same um since then ruined uh, in, in many ways sure um so that that's awesome you know but most people would say you know there's that whole dinner party thing where people being like what are three people that you would have at a dinner party if anyone living or dead most people would name still to this day oscar wilde um because uh he was just a vivacious character and and a funny man um and a complex man too he had female lovers as well um and a you know a playwright and an orator Mm -hmm. and a novelist as well um so a a a brilliant brilliant almost kind of like a mozart type figure of his time ruined by the society not willing to um fundamentally accept him though they embraced his uniqueness early on sure and then so let's going to the exact opposite i would love to hear um we have like two minutes left but uh thoughts about roy Cohn and kind of i, I know the most notorious closeted gay ever um he was a, an assistant attorney to uh mccarthy to joseph mccarthy in the midst of the red scare uh where it was a in the lavender scare which was a 1950s persecu- uh, persecution of homosexuals in the State Department, um, anywhere they could find them, really, who later on went on to be, in the 1970s, uh, the attorney of then a very young um, real estate, you know, scion uh, named Donald Trump, um, and helped fight, uh, helped the Trumps fight a civil rights lawsuit. Yeah. Um, and and settle uh, a civil rights lawsuit uh, against the Trump organization then uh, for uh discriminatory practices and denying um, uh, black tenants the ability to rent from their properties Um, up to the point where in the 1980s um, he contracted uh, the HIV virus uh, denied that he had it said he was this is a notorious story but said that he was perishing of liver cancer he was actually I mean and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this he was made uh, the, the early drug AZT was made available to him at a certain stage um, and it's like where he, he, he utilized his political connections, though he denied his his private life sure. to the end sure. to gain access to privileged access to medications. Sure. I mean, I believe that. I mean, AZT has been around for a long time. It was actually it's a it's a cancer drug. Mm-hmm. So going back to what I was saying, it was just cancer doctors using drugs that were familiar mm-hmm. to them. And, and it still works. I mean, it, it works phenomenally well. Even to this day, it's still very well used, although most people don't use it anymore. We have more updated drugs. But, right. But as a single drug, they you know, in those days. It, it it caused more harm than it did good, but it did show mm-hmm. something. But Roy Cohn is you know in terms of the in the in the pantheon of of, of gay historical figures, the most notorious he is internally really conflicted, one of the most terrible people, closeted figures. He's a subject of Tony Kushner's famous play Angels in America, right? Um, and, and he's and he's the villainous foil, right. Against to, the other characters, and to this day, uh, Trump still kind of he always conjures, asks, yes. "Where's my Roy Cohen?" Where's when my he Roy wants Cohen? a lawyer yes. who's going to defend. Right. Right. Because you see, Trump doesn't need a criminal lawyer. He needs a criminal 
lawyer. Oh my gosh. It was <laughs> no popcorn. Rotten right. tomato, rotten tomatoes. Spoil oh my fruit. gosh. We got we got thirty seconds. Uh, Bobby Fleischer, where can people find you? Um well, you can find me on Mondays. I'm at the LGBT Archives uh, Project of Louisiana Headquarters, which is at 636 St. Anne Street. Uh, the book that I wrote, Tinderbox, is available at Octavia Books, and you can check them out. They're also a fantastic bookstore, and I'd recommend you go Amazing. there for any of your, yes. any of your reading What's needs. What's that restaurant next door? You can get breakfast and then go to the bookstore. It's, we right, got, uh, it's on Laurel? We got 10 seconds. Uh, uh, Doc Griggs, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next week. The uh, folks that are here, all of your students, uh, please continue with your, uh, your pathways in life. Don't give up. And Bobby, thank you so much. We'll see you again Thank you so soon. much. Thank you for tuning in to Get Check at Get Moving.